Good morning, brothers and sisters. My name is Riley. I'm the creative arts director here at Sturgeon Valley Baptist Church. And it's my pleasure that about once a year, I have the opportunity to preach and bring you the word. And it's also great because I get this opportunity to be in the congregation rather than on stage. And I get to like sing songs of worship and not constantly worry about screwing up while I'm playing. So it's a blessing to be here with you. Um, we're going to open the service in prayer, and we're just going to ask God to reveal his heart to us now. Heavenly Father, as we go through Colossians 3, I just pray that your word would be magnified, that your glory would be felt here, Lord, and that we would seek to honor you in word and deed, action and prayer. And I pray for peace over this room as we hear what you have to say to us. Amen. Smoking has been around for a long time. In fact, it's been around for thousands of years in, in some form or an, another. Though in young people today, Generation Z, it hasn't been nearly as popular or as cool as it was in the last 100 years. In fact, it's hard to fathom now, but in restaurants just 15, or, uh, 20 years ago, it was legal to smoke. Uh, some of you younger people may not have known that. There was smoking sections and non-smoking sections, which just essentially meant smellier and then slightly less smelly sections of the restaurants that we would eat in. Tobacco use has been on the steady decline since the 60s, but it peaked in 1965 when just over 42% of the adult population of North America smoked on a semi-consistent basis, meaning about 12 cigarettes per day at least. A pack of cigarettes in 1965 cost just 50 cents, which adjusted for inflation is only about $4.85 now. And a whole carton, which is 10 packs of cigarettes, could be had for four bucks. My grandparents, who were born in the mid-1940s, were raised right in the heat of the cigarette smoking era. And both of my grandparents began smoking when they were quite young, about 12 or 13, I think. And my grandmother smoked to varying degrees all the way up until she passed away. Throughout the past decades, a dark evil secret has been slowly being unfurled in the cigarette industry, namely one that has affected hundreds of millions of people but has somehow taken so long to really get to our hearts. It's that cigarettes are addictive and they kill you. What wasn't so acutely known in the early 1960s was just how addictive and deadly cigarettes could have been. People thought that it was addictive, sure, or that it, it might not be great to inhale cigarette, you know, smoke into your lungs, but they didn't know that it caused cancer. In fact, Back in the late 1950s and early 1960s, doctors had advertisements that cigarette smoking could help women lose weight. That's a crazy thought now, but that is what doctors were advertising in their practices. And the way that the, I, I looked that up and I said, is that false? No, they, women actually would lose weight when they would smoke a pack a day. And the reason why is that when you smoke, you're not eating and cigarette smoke takes away the feelings and the needs to eat. So the way you lost weight was just by not eating food. Imagine this, doctors 
doctors, the people who we trust, being incentivized to lie by corporations to millions. And not only lie, but tell us the exact opposite information that what we think. It's not just that they were, oops, we messed up. They're giving completely false information. And so this became known as the big lie, and it began being taken apart in June of 1964 when the FDA in America forced cigarette companies to put a label on the, each of their packs that had to take up at least 10% of the pack in 1964. And it was a Surgeon General's warning that said that cigarette use may lead to cancer. And over the past 60 years now, that warning has gone from 10% to 75% of each pack is now representative of a warning label. Cigarette use has thankfully, or cigarette use all over the world, and specifically in North America, has declined by 30%, and it's now at only 12% of the adult population who are addicted to cigarettes smoking. It kills. It causes cancer, amongst many other mouth, lung, heart, and throat-related diseases linked to continued exposure, which means that it's not even just the people who smoke that are being affected. I'm sure many of you have heard of the term secondhand smoke, where the people who live with smokers or who live around smokers can experience the same symptoms and the same problems that smokers receive because that they're constantly exposed to cigarette smoke. It saps the life puff by puff from the user and those around them. And much like rot, it starts really small, infinitesimal, and it just slowly starts to grow until it consumes the host. Quitting is horribly difficult. And it's not just horribly hard because of the chemical aspect, because that's what, they'll, that's what we see a lot of. I, I don't know if many of you remember in the early 2000s, there was a, a famous Canadian lady named Barb Tarbox, and she did a bunch of anti-smoking ads because she had cancer, and she eventually passed away with it. And she focused on the, on the chemical in, in your brain that, that reacts when you smoke, the nicotine that causes you to be addicted. But it's not just the nicotine. When I was perusing online and reading forums about quitting, some of the hardest things to quit was the physical habits that are created by smoking. It's not just actually smoking, it's the fact that you get, you know, six breaks in your workday. With your, in the trades, it's all of the boys take a break on the construction site and have a smoke. And then they go back to work for an hour and take a break and have a smoke. And then they have a break and then a smoke. And then a coffee and then a break and then a smoke. And that's how people lived their lives, 40% of the adult population, for a long time. Those habits are incredibly hard to break, especially when you think that cigarette smoking is also known to calm your nerves and make you think slowly and clearly. It's very addictive to have that in your life. My grandfather quit smoking in December of 1993 when he found out that my mother was pregnant with me. He said to her, I want to be around to see my grandchildren grow up. And he's now witnessing his great-grandchildren grow up. But my mother told me a story about him recently that kind of caught my attention, caught me off guard. She said, every now and then, Pop still reaches for his breast pocket for a pack of cigarettes that hasn't been there in 30 years. 
when he's out and about in the field working and he's thinking he'll reach for something that's not there and hasn't been there for a long time. His hands wander and he laughs to himself. The habit doesn't die. And my grandfather's actually now probably been closer to cigarette-free longer in his life than he actually was smoking. Yet something in him still harkens back to the use, the habit that he dumped all those years ago. Perhaps we could call it a second nature or maybe first nature. I couldn't help but immediately be drawn while my mother was telling the story to me to Colossians 3, specifically verse 5. And this is what Colossians 3 verse 5 says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly within you. Paul's calling the Colossian church to account because they lack holiness in their lives. They lack the separateness, the rift that should exist between the sinners and the redeemed. They're still smoking a pack a day. They're still allowing sin to corrupt their thoughts, their deeds, and their words. And that's not acceptable. James says this clearly. What good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith, but he doesn't have works? What good is it if the Colossians believed the truth but they still spread heresy, they still practice lawlessness. What good is their faith? Not good at all. Paul says that this, this is your main point. If anybody's looking on the back of the uh, bulletin, there's a space that this is the main point of Colossians 3, that the Lord wants us to live honoring and pleasing lives to him. That's what we need to understand. God is calling us to account for our actions just as much as he was calling the church at Colossae. And it's not just at the pearly gates. It's here right now. How do we do that? How do we practice holiness and live lives honoring to God right here, right now? Well, let's read together. From the book of Colossians, if you'll flip to chapter three on your devices, close the Kijiji app, Close the internet app, turn off your Facebook, flip with me to the Bible app, open up your word to Colossians chapter three, starting at verse one. And if you don't have your Bible, I'm going to be reading it out loud, so just listen in tightly. Colossians three, verse one. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly within you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And in these things you too once walked, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouths. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Jew nor Greek, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, 
humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive the other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so much you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Pastor Tom has been walking us through the book of Colossians, and we've just been digging into the meat at the end of chapter two here, and now comes Colossians three. For those of you who have been with us, you may remember that Paul is writing to the brand new church at the city of Colossae. He's never been there, and he wants to be there with them. He yearns to be with his brothers and sisters, but he can't. So what does he do? He writes them a letter. He hears, what does he hear, sorry, from the, the leaders of the church? Well, it's kind of a mixed bag over in Colossae. There's some good things. He hears that there are believers sincerely devoted to their faith in Christ. But the bad is that heresies and lies about Christ are creeping into church doctrine and that most of the churchgoers have neglected to leave their old earthly habits behind when they came to know Christ. And Paul does not pat them on the back in Colossians 3. He gives them a stern warning, a rebuke, and then guidance for avoiding future pitfalls from poor behavior. The gentle-hearted compliments and, oh, I love you, it's so nice, that's from chapter 1. And the hopeful goodbye in the future meeting are in chapter four, but right now we're not there. We're in the middle of the proverbial hard knock sandwich. My wife calls it a poop sandwich, but you know, she uses another word. Have you heard of this tactic of constructive criticism? You sandwich a criticism between two good things. So you have the good part, the compliments, the joy, the really hard part, And then you have another compliment. You're the best. I'm so glad to see you. You're excited. Well, you're doing all these things horribly, though, and I hope you change. But I love you. That's Paul's way of doing things. He loves the hard knock sandwich. And he gets very good in the New Testament at doing this. In fact, in almost every single one of his pastoral letters, the letters of a shepherd trying to help his sheep, it kind of has that same thread. You'll see that throughout Jesus loves you. Stop doing all the horrible things that you're doing and I'll be there soon. I love you, Paul. So let's jump into the center of the Colossians hard knock sandwich together. Paul is talking about what's called the mortification of sin. Mortification means the killing of sin. Putting to death the things that are holding believers back from having an unhindered relationship from Christ. And that's really strong language. In fact, it's language that's very seldom used in the word. And it's not just avoid sin or to run away from sin or to flee from from sin. It's put to death sin. Paul is clear here. Put to death what is earthly within you. Puritan preacher John Owen famously wrote, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. 
What is clear to me from reading this passage is that Paul is commanding his listeners to have an active role in their own faith. It's not just enough to passively accept Christ and then immediately keep doing the thing that you were just doing. That's not what faith involves. It involves a 180 degree turn away from the way that you were living before to a new way of life. It involves putting to death the sins of your life and putting on Christ. Sin is not apathetic. People think that, oh, it's just some, sin is just something out there. It's just, it's, it can be done. It's not apathetic. It hates you. Sin is against you, brothers and sisters. It is against all of us. It is against God. It seduces us with pleasure and then tears the life from our soul. Paul is acutely aware of this nature too because he once lived that sinful life of depravity. He found and hunted Christians and killed them. He sees the sinful heart of the church at Colossae. They want to be free, but they're also like flirting and living with sin and heresies. We might wonder what was the sin that they were entrenching themselves in. Well, Paul's list kind of lays that out for us pretty clearly. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. The first century church doesn't really sound very far off of the 21st century church, does it? It sounds like sexual sin was a scourge to them. And it, it's as much as a scourge as it was then, it is a scourge now. The earthly things were taking their minds off of the heavenly things, and Paul says that right up front. His warning to them is as much as it is, is to us. We should not be focused on the earthly things because they fade. They will eventually die. They'll break down. All of the things of earth will fade. They feel good for a time. They give us temporary pleasure and joy and peace, but that fades. It's much like a cigarette. A smoke feels good right up until it doesn't. And it's over. At first, it just seems like a little habit that's out of control. But then like a fire to sawdust, it gets out of control really quick. Suddenly, you can't think straight without a dart hanging from your lips. You go outside absentmindedly thinking about smoking. Your workday becomes the space between each cigarette break and at home, it becomes the time alone on the back porch every 45 minutes. It kills you slowly but surely, this addiction. And that's the insidious thing about smoking, actually, isn't it? Every cigarette puts you closer to death, but you do it anyway. Sin is the very same. We do it by flirting with it because it's close by. Then we begin to see it too often. Then we visit it often. Then our lives start to fall apart. We stop caring about what God has to say to us. We, then we stop caring about God altogether. And then we love our sin so much that we deny his existence to exonerate our guilt about it. Enough of that. Set your minds on the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. You were bought 
by Jesus Christ on the cross. You were ransomed by him so that you can live in freedom. He paid for your debt and praise the Lord for that. He paid for mine too and I'm so grateful. Our lives are hidden with Christ. We are no longer in the bondage of sin. We aren't stuck to that if we want. You see, that's the crux of it. It's available to us, but the Lord does not force it upon you. He doesn't make you make the choice. The choice is in your hands. That's active faith. We are not removed from the decision. We have to actually sit here in this sanctuary on November 13th in St. Albert right now, and we have to actively pursue God, actively pursue faith. Are we living lives honoring and pleasing to the Lord, or are we living like the Colossians, smoking a pack a day, taking advantage of the grace of God and flirting with sin? We hear Paul say we need to mortify sin. This is, I can't stress how, how intense this word is for the Bible. This is like, this means execution. Like that's what the Greek is. It's to execute your sin. Take your sin out back, bang. Like that's what Paul is telling you to do. Execute your sin. How do we execute sin? That's kind of a big thing. Practically, of course, we honor God. That's the relief to the hard knock sandwich. Put on then. This is what he t- tells us. What do you do? How do you live this way? We put on then as God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved. Here's what you put on. Compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Put on humility. Put on meekness. Put on patience. Bearing with one another because we all know we have to bear with one another sometimes. And if one person has a complaint against another person, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Put off sin and put on Christ. Put on compassion because compassion means you destroy malice. Put on kindness because in putting on kindness you destroy anger and wrath. Put on humility and meekness because in doing those things you destroy slander. Put on patience because in doing those things you destroy impulsivity. The antithesis to sinfulness is living out the fruit of the Spirit. The opposite of sin is the fruit of the Spirit. The Colossians were to cease their deadly behavior and replace it with the exact opposite behavior. What's the opposite of smoking? Quitting. And that doesn't mean that it's easy. Not at all. 29 years later and you still might reach for that pack sometimes. While deep in thought, your brain forgets and it wanders and you try to grab that cigarette that hasn't been there in 30 years. You know the answer. It's right in front of you in scriptures. Put to death your sin and put on Christ. That's the whole package. There's no one without the other. You can't live a life killing sin without Jesus at your side helping you. And you can't live a life with Jesus at your side without actively being involved in killing your sin. We don't do this alone. There is a truth that lies in tandem with our Christian walk. And this is the truth, that Jesus guides our steps and bears our burdens along the way. And it is not 
easy to take the moral high road. In fact, it's never easy because it runs in direct contrast to your nature. Your nature is to take the low road, is to take the easy road, the path of least resistance, the most worn path. But we should not be doing that. We want to act out in the ways that Paul has mentioned in our hearts when we are wrong. We want to act out in anger. We want to act out in malice and slander, wrathfulness, covetousness, which is idolatry. And if they sound easy to avoid, it's because we're probably not avoiding them. You're not wielding that ax prepared to kill the sin. It takes watchfulness, prayerfulness, and deep self-discipline to walk that narrow path of righteousness. That's from theologian Tom Wright has said that. How do we live out Colossians 3? It takes watchfulness, prayerfulness, and self-discipline. We absolutely must be watchful for our walk with the Lord, prayerful for ourselves and others through this time, and disciplined in our actions while we are trying to live righteously. The enemy is gonna try to tear you down, guaranteed. The moment you walk out the doors, In fact, sitting here even, the enemy is going to immediately try to hop on that. He's going to try to get you to stop executing your sin, to become totally complacent about it. The closer we walk, the heavier the burden becomes. But that's why God has said this, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Jesus' words from Matthew. He will take that burden In a time of need, it was once said to me by a friend, prayer is the least and the most that I can do for you. And while I didn't really appreciate the sympathetic comment at the time, I certainly understand its meaning retrospectively now. Asking for prayer is double-edged. It forces us into a position of vulnerability because we have to talk about what's eating at us. And we don't like that. We don't like sharing ourselves. We don't like sharing our Christian walk. When was the last time a fellow brother or sister asked you, how's your walk with God? Not very often. It's hard to get to that point. It's hard to open our hearts. But Jesus says that when we do this, when, when we share, when we confess our sins to brothers and sisters, when it becomes so much easier to bear the burden. And there... Fellow true brothers and sisters, friends, they're not doing it judgingly. They don't want you to confess your sins judgingly to manipulate you. They want it to benefit you. They want to see you succeed. Our fellow Christians want you to live a life worthy of the calling on your life. They want to see kindness, gentleness, self-control, genuine forgiveness. They want to see you execute malice, anger, wrath, sexual immorality, and idolatry. And they want the same thing for themselves. Paul sums it up near the end of Colossians 3, uh, sorry, near the end of my section of Colossians 3, around verse 14, he says, put on love. We need to put on love. Put off hatred and evil and put on love because love is the peace that binds all of these things together. They are all part of God's distinct nature. All of these things are part of Jesus' nature. Kindness, gentleness, meekness, self-control, patience, forgiveness. These are all the eternal attributes of the Lord. 
And he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. We can have peace through the storm of dealing with our sin because Christ is within us. And I pray for all of you here today who are feeling that heavy ladenness of being totally burdened by sinfulness, burdened by the flesh, I pray that you feel his supernatural peace that transcends your understanding at your side. May it rule in your heart this morning as you know that you are not alone walking in the walk. You have your brothers and sisters around you. There's about 200 of us in here. The brothers and sisters meeting earnestly to hear what the Lord has to say, to lift each other up in prayer. That is the importance of being together. Paul's closing for this reminder is nothing but joy. This is the end of the sandwich. So we worked through, we, we got through the greeting and then we worked through the really hard part, the hard knock sandwich. You guys are screwing up. You need to stop doing what you're doing. You need to execute your sin. You need to put on the good things of life. We don't do it by ourselves. We do it with Christ and let us worship him. That's what he says. Let us worship the Lord. Let us sing songs together. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We can debate what spiritual songs means later. But that's what he wants from us. He says, oh, now that you've acknowledged this, now that you've executed your sin, that you're living in freedom of Christ, and that you know that he's with you in this, oh, let us worship him for what he has done. Let us lift up these songs and, 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 and hymns and, and spiritual songs that, that bring us joy and peace. Let us live lives honoring and pleasing to the Lord in conduct and in word. Let us lift up praises because he deserves the worship and praise. He saved us from that wretched pit of despair which we had no hope. We had no hope of executing our sins by ourselves. It is absolutely essential that he is with you doing it. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus here, I encourage you to consider him. The Christian life is not easy. But nothing, I'm sure you've experienced that, nothing worth doing comes easy. I encourage you to especially read the Gospel of John and learn about Jesus' divine nature, his love for his people. No matter where they came from, his love rings clear in this. Let us strive for the Father together with Jesus at our side, throwing off the shackles of sin. Let's flick that cigarette out of our mouth, focusing on the race that Paul has called us, the race of faith, being accountable to brothers and sisters, to friends who are Christians who are gonna lift us up in prayer, who are gonna be watchful over us, That's the best part about having a great Christian friend is that you know that when you ask them for prayer and you tell them about what's on your heart, you know they're gonna ask you about it again. They're not just gonna say, yep, I'll pray for you, sounds good. Or it's not just an email on a prayer list, which is great. Those things are helpful, but when you tell it to a a great Christian friend and you're confessing that hard thing in your heart that they are gonna ask you about it again and they're gonna hold you accountable about it again. Let us pray together this morning. Father, I pray that we have open hearts to receive the truth. 
strength to do the hard thing, to mortify our sin, to get rid of the addictions in our lives, to flick away the cigarettes that are ensnaring us, that are holding us back from fullness of relationship with you. And I pray for vulnerability in this congregation, Lord. I pray that every one of us would seek to be vulnerable with another person that we trust in Christ so that we can lift each other up. You say in the word, iron sharpens iron. I've heard that in many ways. Let us seek that. Let us seek to sharpen each other's iron. Let the peace that comes from you rule in our hearts. And let there be eternal joy as we meet together on Sundays in love and brotherhood. Amen.